Hi everyone, Air here. Welcome to our Spirituality and Growth Mindset Podcast. Today, I have a special guest with us that has been known for her worldwide speaking, her great selling books, as well as being a motivational coach to women across the world. I have Miss Tonya Trinova. Great to be here with you. <laughs> so Tonya, go ahead and tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like and what you're currently working on that has to do with helping women across the world. Good question. So my day-to-day looks like my day starts with prayer. That's for sure. When I wake up in the morning, I definitely give everything to God because I feel, you know, whether people, whether people are subscribed to the universe or they subscribe to just life as the biggest energy, you know, for me, it's God, but the highest power that continues to power me is what gets my grace every single morning, gets my praise and gets my intention going so that I get some clarity. And a couple of years ago, actually, when I was really struggling with my business and especially just, you know, always finding the right types of clients and things like that, I actually made God the CEO of my company. So now he's in charge of marketing and prospecting and, you know, alignment, which is so phenomenal. And it's just been the best decision of my entire life, you know, so God said, like the CEO of my business and my life. And so I start with prayer. Oh, that's such a nice way to start. And I know that that's probably what you started with, but you also this morning got to start a little bit with moving your body. Oh, I loved our hit class this morning or our fit class this morning in the sweat lodge. I think sweating is so underrated. You know what? We try to prevent sweating and complain when it happens, but I think it's one of the best things. And I was reading on the door. It had, I don't know if I remember everything it had on there, but it was like, you know, basically sweat, heal, detox detox grow like mm-hmm. it was amazing yeah i loved it i can honestly say i've never had a guest on the podcast that i got to see work out before we actually sat down exactly. and i'm like she has something there like she's pushing through it because those mountain climbers are no joke no especially with the bands around here <laughs> I, I like what she says though i like i love that people are now you know cross-populating intention so it's like how you are in one way of your life is how you are in every way of your life. And I think that really helps because we tend to fool ourselves that, oh, well, when I'm at work, I'm this way. But when I'm at home, I'm this, I'm this way. Or I'm at the gym, I'm this way. It's like, nah, you take yourself everywhere you go. So you may as well already build the resilience muscles and the push forward muscles and the, you know, whatever application you've got. Like that's you bring yourself everywhere to every game. So you have to play your best game. And that's already hitting home on the best topic I wanted to bring you on the podcast for Mm. is you have a way of taking habits, whether they are good habits or bad habits and identifying them in your life and then choosing or deciding what you're going to perceive them as Mm. and bringing that out to become your best self. And if I captured that, I captured that probably in your book. And then also I've had a privilege of talking to you for, you know, a couple hours now. Mm. And you just have a way of just understanding that Mm self-awareness. And you even brought up a concept and I'm going to let you share it with everybody because I don't think I could do it as well as you did. Um, The runway year. All right. Tell me a little bit more about that. The runway year. Well, we're both Gemini, which is so much fun. And we're both on what I call the runway year. So a runway year is, is the last year before your new decade. So 19, 29, 39, 49. And for me, I'm turning 49 this year and I'm, and I'm right away. I knew it. It's like, this is my runway year whether you know you're on a red carpet runway or you're on an airplane runway or a fashion runway fashion (laughs) runway exactly like the runway is the best place to be because you know that you're moving towards something that's the most incredible aspect of your life so for me I wanted to soar into my 50s and just like I wanted to soar into my 40s and I wanted to soar into my 30s you know I feel like we need to build the momentum towards the next decade so we bring our best selves and along the runway year just like a hot air balloon that's taking off just like a plane that's taking off like a hot air balloon is even better because if you're in the runway year my goal is to think about okay what am I letting go of that I'm not bringing in that I can levitate that I can lighten up so that I can reach higher where can I level up in my life 
and so in the runway year that's where I say yes to bigger better adventures that's where I say you know I really give myself a lot of opportunity and the thing is life always matches your intention and so if my intention is to have this runway year already like new opportunities and really I just booked a trip to Marrakesh and at the end of June which is right after the birthday and it's uh, with a group of entrepreneurs like from all around the world that have multi-million dollar businesses and they're all really grounded and spiritual and in for growth and I just love the fact that this is part of my runway year like reinventing my story with all these women now I'm going to totally derail us. So I'm going to bring us back. I promise. So you just mentioned that you're going to go on this vacation with other women entrepreneurs that have been successful in all of their industries. Mm-hmm. You're a bit of a superstar. And I've had that basically be a social media stalking you a little bit and then Googling you a little bit. So what is it that you've been able to accomplish throughout your life in a business scale? Because I know you have a skincare company, you have the books, like what got you to the level where people want to listen to you speak and they do like 500,000, you know, even, you know, one, I'm a party of one, but I just want to listen to you all day because you do have that aspect. Like, how did you grow your mindset or even your spirituality to that point? such a good question it's funny because I remember in university when I you know I felt called I felt called to I truly I know this sounds really corny but I truly do feel called to do this work and I do feel like we're all of us in one way or another the voice of God because ultimately people are constantly looking for guidance asking for help looking for ways to move forward in their life and ultimately God speaks to us through people and so I'm you know I'm I'm intending to be one of those voices so that I can be a source of guidance and you know inspiration and encouragement for others as they go through their journey because you know how the journey is just so chock full of so many different experiences but when I think about it you know I remember in university doing my first presentation and I I just did not know that public speaking had its own physiological setup like I didn't realize that I had to prepare my body to match where my mind was at and I opened my mouth and like powder came out and I was trembling and I couldn't remember anything I had to say and I just was like devastated because I didn't think that I did you know it's kind of like I liken it the public speaking for me was it's like when an eight-year-old kid gets up on top of the roof and ties a red scarf around his neck and thinks he's going to fly like completely determined certain beyond you know all measure of doubt and then takes a flying leap and breaks both legs right? mm-hmm. and just as they can't believe it they've been betrayed and that's how i felt so i recognized at that point that you know even though there's a will there's definitely a skill and so so much of that i went to the dale carnegie school of public speaking afterwards and i volunteered there for four years uh while i was in my early 20s to develop more of the skill of speaking right and just because it helps people to receive the information in a specific way right in order for them to just be able to utilize it and now that I do a lot of um, adult learning education the retention is much higher when you know how to share the information but when you think about where I started I think when I first came from Russia in 1980 and I was you know uh, six I mean my first introduction to English was television which of course back in the day thank goodness they didn't think that anything was wrong with letting your kid watch tv 24 hours a day so i learned i learned and i watched everything and i learned from tv and one of the television shows i used to watch was evangelism on sundays because there was nothing else to watch really Mm -hmm. but what i was really compelled by and because i grew up jewish i certainly and in russia where we had no religion at all i had absolutely no affiliation to what i was hearing like i couldn't i didn't know who jesus was i didn't understand anything they were saying however an evangelist tone of voice has such a vibrational quality to it like it gets you in the emotional place like you're not listening from your mind you're listening from your heart mm-hmm. and then I would see in these shows that they would you know ask people to like throw their crutches or you know open their eyes with sight and people would literally perform miracles simply by faith mm-hmm. and I knew from that point on honestly I think that there was something internalized in me that just said one day that that's me. One day I would love to heal people with language. That was just such a, a profound calling on my life. And so my mother at the time was a dermatologist from Russia and she actually back then developed creams that healed gangrene without amputation. So she was, because in Russia you really didn't have a lot of medication, you kind of had to make a lot of things and 
understand physiology. So when we came to Canada, she opened up a skincare clinic as an esthetician, but, you know, a dermatological esthetician. And so, you know, any immigrant family, the minute your kids are old enough to speak, they're working, which is great. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Right. So I grew up in the skincare uh, environment where people came for, you know, extreme psoriasis and eczema and acne and things. And we did a lot of application for that in order to help people. But then as I grew up in this industry, I recognized that every time they came, when they were stressed, their condition got worse worse exactly and this was in the 80s before we understood how the mind affected the body and we also didn't you know sunday shopping just started so people were so excited to like have extended hours and they could shop and then the fax machine you didn't have to wait for a letter you could just literally press go and somebody got it you know and think this was like before the internet and i recognized you know what stress is such an individual phenomenon like what stresses me doesn't stress you and it would stress the other person so I recognized at that point, if I can help people manage their stress by really self-awareness, talking to themselves differently, reframing it, their condition got better along with the prescriptive creams that we gave them. And that was my first sort of introduction into emotional healing and and, mental health. Yeah, mental health, which Mm -hmm. is now what we call it. And so after I I actually got my um, certification to be an esthetician, I was Canada's youngest government licensed esthetician. I pushed, I actually pushed the age down because normally you have to be 16 and I got mine at 14 which was really helpful because in Winnipeg where I grew up which is kind of the belly button of Canada we had a very uh, high indigenous population you know in the urban area and so a lot of those youth at risk and and just people in general that wanted to do something different other than shops at high school, you know, decided that they could actually get their aesthetics license too and become professionals at an early age and and earn credible money, Mm -hmm. which was great. So I worked with my mother until I was 21 and I went through university for business and psychology. And then I, my goal was always to move to Europe. Like when you live in Winnipeg and it's minus 40, like it's honestly nine months of straight, full on winter snow up to the, you know, your eyeballs. All you do is get to bed and say, please God, give me a job that travels. That's what I think every night, please God, give me a job that travels. And so I got that when I was in my twenties, I moved to Toronto and I was a, a sales representative for a really large skincare company, but I quickly grew to be an educator because of this public speaking capacity that I had. And, um, and then I moved to Europe when I was 22 and I became uh, an international educator. So I traveled 22 countries a year and I spoke in different languages, but I taught back then because it was a seaweed company. I taught people how to become better professionals, how to run the business of aesthetics, but also, you know, who they were when it came to being healers for their client. Like, for example, it wasn't just about showing them how to work with the skincare that we were using to be able to get better results but it was also about what are you doing to increase the self-esteem of the client that you have in your chair because let's say somebody with a lifetime of acne may heal the acne but they don't actually yeah so much deeper they don't heal the they don't heal the self-esteem and they don't heal even the mental moment when someone leans in to kiss them that they pull away because they're so used to not letting anyone want to touch their face right Mm -hmm. and so it's like how are you actually helping your client heal mentally and emotionally not just physically from what you're doing so that was a really huge awakening for people in our industry because we want to be as influential as possible right in the world of healing wow i could listen to you for hours (laughs) i'm sure you get that all the time wow so i will go ahead and say that i learned so much um just about you in general i am also part jewish so I connect with you there and an immigrant and I understand what it's like to kind of had to go out of your comfort zone and not want to be cold anymore right. <laughs> and go to a different country. But you also touched a little bit on what you work on in your book as well there. Mm. I recently learned that we have this whole neural network in our brain and most people know that and they know that we identify with depression. And to give you a little bit of my history, mm-hmm. I have a few degrees that are all in science. I have one in organic chemistry, one in nutrition sciences and one in health and human sciences with a focus in cosmetics 
And so I relate with you on the skincare. I could nerd out. And I remember having cystic acne even and how much that impacted me. Mm-hmm. And people come into like flying with air in the store and they'll look at my skin and they'll be like, there is no way you can identify with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can identify on that soul level. And what I learned recently is, yes, we have all the neural network in our brain, but we recently also discovered there's 40,000 neurons and different neural networks in our hearts that are completely independent of our brain. Wow. And I feel like that was the perfect segue. I read your book, Undermind, and I'll let you announce the subtitle so people get a real clear picture of it. Mm -hmm. So it's Undermind, and then the subtitle is... Discovering the seven subconscious beliefs that sabotage your life and how to overcome them. I'm so glad you said that. It was so beautiful. (laughs) So with that, I know that when you were talking about the Undermind, I took that as the subconscious, Mm -hmm. right? And then you said the Mastermind is the conscious. Right. Now, when I... I learned my other fact about the heart. I kind of related that super quickly in those categories. And you break it down in the book in different types of charts, which are really good for people that don't like to read. Right. Um, I do. So I'm like one of the lucky exceptions here. And I read your book, I think, in like two days because I knew you were coming on. <laughs> I was like, I got to be prepared. And I really quickly identified those neural networks of the heart with the undermine. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get your input on that because you kind of looked at me like that was maybe new news to you or maybe Maybe you just didn't expect it coming from me. Like, oh no, that's good. Let's talk about it. So explain to me if you were introducing, you know, the mastermind versus the undermine, what does that look like for somebody? So essentially the mastermind or the wonder mind or the, you know, it's basically the conscious mind. And so the conscious mind is something that starts developing, you know, well after birth. So in and around age seven or so we start becoming, although I have to, I feel like kids are so much more conscious today. So I don't know about this. These the facts that we share are ones that we've relied on from science, but it's always self-corrected. But I'll, I'll say this. Our subconscious mind is developed right from the womb, right from inception. In mm-hmm. fact, it comes, depending on your what you ascribe to, like that's where all your sort of karmic energy and all these different things. And your subconscious mind is constantly downloading information. So in utero, your subconscious mind is really absorbing whether it's safe or not to be in the world. Like it's taking from the mother's experience, right? And also hearing from what's really happening. And just to kind of give you a background, my uncle is, um, the reason we came to Canada instead of Israel, for example, is because my uncle published, helped co-publish the fetal alcohol syndrome study. Mm. So we know that if you're drinking alcohol, it comes becomes part of your baby's chemistry. Well, fear also becomes part of your baby's chemistry. And so your subconscious mind develops in utero and continuously throughout your life, but that's what holds all of your programs and, autom- you know, and does all of your autonomic um functions like beats your heart and things like that but the mastermind or the wonder mind is the conscious mind it's the part of you that's the present day adult or you know human mind that looks at everything rationally and it also takes in everything from the world so when you look out it filters the information and then the subconscious mind moves things into action so the conscious mind will for example set a goal like as an adult your conscious mind will set the goal i want to eat better right i want to eat healthier I want, you know, I want my genes to fit better. But your subconscious mind has a mind of its own. So if it's programmed for self-soothing with food, then you might be going well and then all of a sudden get a bad phone call and then reach for a donut. Or that breakup or yeah, that anything, job loss, yeah, whatever it might anything be. Anything that triggers fear. Ultimately, anything that triggers fear, your subconscious mind has a programmed self-defense mechanism in it called your survival code, right? And so however you choose to survive through situations and cope through situations, situations, your subconscious mind just turns that on and it overrides your conscious mind if you're not in a state of self-awareness and careful. And so you can use your conscious mind to set intentions. You can use your conscious mind to stay mindful and present and vigilant. And you can also use your conscious mind to program your subconscious mind with new beliefs and new behaviors and new habits. But it's that it's a conscious effort, right? Like you have to really be present and mindful for it. But your subconscious mind is what's operating with you 95 to 99% of the day, even while you dream. I do feel like you stressed it was important. I know you also co-authored this book, so I feel like it's important to mention her too. Um, What is the co-author's name? My co-author's name and business partner in Courageous Living is Joanna Andros. Okay, I'm going to talk to Joy 
Atlanta one day too. I promise oh, I will. <laughs> the founder of the progressive neural resolution therapy, the PNRT that we talk about in the book. And uh, she's an incredible healing therapist. Like I, you know, she and I have a great relationship because she definitely is the person who heals the past mm-hmm. and I help people move forward into the future. Nice. Great partnership. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think in the book, the two of you all, it probably came up in this way as well, as far as the duality of you guys working together is the wonder mind versus the undermined. One of them is not more important than the other. And in spirituality, I would say the wonder mind is like the masculine energy versus the undermine is the feminine energy. Mm. Do you agree with that? Like you need both, right? Like you can't just have one operating all the time. The conscious mind, like to your point, right? Masculine energy, when we think about what is masculine energy, even as it exists in women, masculine energy tends to be more action oriented. Feminine energy tends to be more nurturing oriented, right? And so, you know, the conscious mind is an action oriented mind. But at the same time, your subconscious mind could have a program in it that I can't, I can't stop no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, for example, who go on vacation and just can't seem to stop doing and working and they can't settle into their relaxation. It comes down to a core belief in the subconscious mind of, you know, I can't stop, mm-hmm. for example. So, I mean, I understand the masculine and feminine kind of, you know, flow to it but i think it's more relevant to talk about the core beliefs that we have as individuals that run us because our beliefs drive our behavior our beliefs drive our behavior and that's why in the second chapter we talk about your results reveal what's undermined so a lot of people might say oh no i don't have any problems with relaxing or i don't have any problems with shutting down meanwhile you look at their life and they haven't taken a vacation in years or they never give themselves downtime or at the moment they have some downtime they take a phone call from a anxious friend or you know something like that so it's kind of like we can't escape results results truly it's like taking your temperature, like taking a blood test. Your life results show you what beliefs are operating in your life at any given point. Do you feel like that correlates to being triggered as well from like a traumatic experience? 100% because the trauma makes us so in the seven stages in the blueprint of self-sabotage. And this is where Joanna and I really put something new that was forward. Because up until now, self-sabotage has been seen as an act like self-doubt or procrastination. It's kind of like one thing. Oh, I'm sabotaging myself. I'm like getting in my own way. But self-sabotage actually has, you know, seven stages of it. Like in this, so while you develop a sabotaging pattern, right, in your life. And it all comes from a traumatic incident. And it could be a defining moment, whether it's the best moment of your life. Like you won the race despite the fact that you thought you would never. Mm-hmm. And now you have this new core belief that says I can do it despite my doubts validate myself exactly right and so if you have a trauma however like let's say we'll take something light and say it's a divorce you know and your parents divorce so it's like you you know you believe maybe I can't trust love invalidated yeah invalidated yeah Mm -hmm. so I can't trust love and let's say it's divorce and you can't trust love or love is like love is impermanent or don't love anyone too much because they could hurt you Mm -hmm. that could be a lesson you learn in that in that moment then later on as an adult you could be dating and everything's going really well but then all of a sudden that new partner says you know I'm really starting to get to like you and then you think oh no love is permanent don't get too deep otherwise you'll get hurt and you start sabotaging Mm -hmm. the situation but it's from a younger belief system not one that is updated conscious because consciously you want the relationship but subconsciously Mm -hmm. you still have an old program that continues to literally sabotage your life I know that, and I'll share this with everybody else here in a moment. When I was reading through the blueprint of self-sabotage, and I've done a lot of healing work from my past trauma, but also from just other traumas throughout my life, right? Like I have my major one that, you know, I had to do some heavy lifting, right? Those heavy weights, kind of like this morning, but also those light weights are important too. And those little traumas of like being rejected or, you know, not getting the job that you wanted or, you know, connecting with a girlfriend and, you know, her fading you out after a while because it might not have anything to do with you, but those are like little light traumas, right? And so... If you don't mind, I don't, I'm assuming you have them memorized, but I'm still going to go through them a little oh, bit. And um, cause I know everybody else here doesn't and I'll read them off too. So you don't have to worry. 
And so I know that you already said the defining moment and that's step one um, in the book. I think it's on page one. Let's see if I wrote it down. 188 in the book. And I highly suggest everyone go get this book. I, like I mentioned, is like I work with counselors. I work with different trauma, like experts in different fields and different types of trauma. So I love it when I can still pick something up and uncover something new about me. And that's why I was like, this book, this book is gold. So the second step you said is conscious. So that goes back to like the masculine nature, that decision. So how would that apply in your divorce example? Okay. So let's say then in the divorce, so I'm going to take this right to myself because when I was um, six, when we first got to Canada, my parents were truly unbeknownst to us because they never fought. They never did anything. And I was so close to my dad too. I remember the morning where I woke up and I came downstairs and all of a sudden my dad was gone and I felt like a totally different energy in the house. And my mother said, Oh, your dad's gone. You'll see him on the weekends. It's over. Mm. And I was just like, Oh my God. You know what I mean? My whole life was shattered. No, of course, compassion was not trending back then. So ultimately it's like what you don't realize is that your mind is constantly making decisions. And so my, in, in the moment, the trauma affected me emotionally. So in my subconscious, like it's a very deep scar, if you will. And then my, your conscious mind makes a decision. It must be my fault, Mm. you know, or I thought love was supposed to last. It love doesn't last. You know, marriage is a joke. Like whatever, whatever decision that your conscious mind in the moment can make, that's where your belief comes from. It actually creates like a core belief in your mind. So in my time at the, in, I know for myself, it was love is impermanent. You know, they didn't love me enough to stay together. And so I don't matter. Right. And especially since that no one sat down and told my brother and I this was happening. It was like we were the afterthought. It's like, I don't matter. Life doesn't, you know, love doesn't work. And I wasn't important enough for them to stay together. Right. So those does that decision creates a perception of your life. That decision is like a blanket decision. So think about it. If you touched a hot oven when you were small and you burnt yourself, your brain generalizes all ovens just to keep you safe. And that's going to be step three is the perception. That's right. The perception perception is step three. And so you create this blanket perception of I'm not, you know, I'm not important. I'm not worthy enough to, you know, for people to stay together. I'm not worthy. I don't matter. Right. Again, I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. And then love is impermanent. You know, you can't trust love. Love's not trustworthy. And so your perception of the world is that. And I'll tell you interesting because um, I used to have like intense best friends when I was in school. And then at the end of the school year, I would break up with every one of them. I would come to them and I would say, I'm sorry, this isn't working. We have to break up. And I would just, Mm -hmm. I know I would hurt them so much, but I couldn't, I just physically could not keep a long-term relationship with my best girlfriends because I knew that love wasn't trustworthy. I wanted to hurt them before they could hurt me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just felt like, and I made them, I invalidated them. Like I felt invalidated. So what we do is we repeat our trauma onto other people. That's why they say hurt people, hurt people. Right. Mm-hmm. So you walk around with this perception and the perception creates a neuronal part of you. So when we talk about the fact that there's a part, like you literally develop a part of you because not all of you believes that love is not permanent or love can't be trusted. In fact, not all of you believes that you don't matter. If I ask somebody, it's like, do you matter? Of course I matter. Yeah, it's like immediate I, reaction. Yeah, I totally matter. But subconsciously, deep down, there's a part of you that believes you don't matter. And so or you don't, you're not worthy, right? And so it's like, there's a, and that's why even today we do a lot of like a really interesting, who is the, who is the authentic you? Because a part of me wants to grow my business. A part of me wants to escape and move to, you know, Costa Rica, right? Mm-hmm. A part of me believes in myself, but a part of me doesn't. Mm-hmm. So which part is the real you? And that's the, what comes down to is that your perception creates these parts of you and this part of you is this unworthy part and what happens is that it talks to you like this neuronal part of you talks to you either in negative inner chatter so as you're now applying for a job for example or as you're moving towards a new relationship or as you're doing whatever you know or even you walk into a room and there's not enough room to sit for everybody you know but instead of you taking a seat you just wait for everybody else to sit because you think well I don't matter. I don't need a chair. I need to validate your needs, you know? 
and then some of those parts because I know that you're getting an inner chatter and, and that's like step five but I just want to go a little bit deeper right how do some of those parts identify because in your current statement you're like you go into the room is that the doubter or is that like a multiple like different parts or is there a way to easily identify those parts for you well when you hear your inner voice tell you things like you know what don't worry don't sit let other people do it sit on the floor yes yeah, sit on the floor like who are you anyway to want a seat or what do you you know you're not going to get this job there's so many people that are better at you for this like what do you think you're even doing like we all know what negative inner chatter sounds like so when you hear negative inner chatter that is the traumatized part of you 100 percent Okay, that is a traumatized part of you that is trying to keep you safe by preventing you from taking risks outside of your comfort zone and preventing you from failing. Mm -hmm. So these parts are actually self-protective. They're not there to wound you necessarily, even though that's the outcome. But these parts truly try to protect you from falling in love deeper, getting rejected at the job by simply rejecting you first, by letting you know that you can't, you know. And if it doesn't speak to you in inner chatter, it speaks to you in physical symptoms. So we're still on level five, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like traumatic defining moment. From that, you make a decision about yourself, others, and the world. That's the other thing too, um, you know, Air, is that we don't just make a decision about ourselves. We make a decision that I am unworthy, people are cruel, life is unfair, example. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I am like, you know, I'm not lovable, people are untrustworthy, and life is unsafe. So we make three decisions right in that moment. And that's what creates that number three perception. And that perception models out a part because you, through that perception, you're constantly developing this self-protective mechanism to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. And so that negative inner chatter discourages you from really living your best life because it doesn't want you to take any risks or it discourages you through um, physical symptoms. So you might get a headache or you might get a stomach ache or, you know, every time, if you think I'm not smart, for example, right? As a, as a horrible. I think you're smart. Don't worry. No, yes. thank you. <laughs> no, but it's like, but people who have experienced I'm not smart, right? We'll mm -hmm. start reading a book and then read the same paragraph 13 times or they'll fall asleep as soon as that book is in their hand. Or they'll fail the test because they didn't believe that, like they didn't even show up because I thought they were just gonna fail. Exactly, exactly. And so those beliefs have physical symptoms. So it could be just my stomach hurts so much I can't get to the test, mm -hmm. you know, or my headache really people get migraines or, you know, the, the, something in life triggers us and the self-protective mechanism becomes very active mm -hmm. and actively tries to sabotage what's happening. And the negative inner chatter is, and it comes down to this, right? It's like anything I feel in my body that doesn't like feels depleting energy, like guilt, like shame, like any of that, that's all fear. And that's all from coming from trauma. So, you know, anything that in my life that is more, you know, joy, energy, love, that's all God. That's like connecting to the spiritual consciousness that is who we truly are. And so, you know, when you suffer from inner chatter or the negative physical symptoms, it's trying to protect you from moving forward. And that becomes a pattern in your life. So it's like, every time I do this, I go back to that, right? Mm -hmm. So every time I try to, for instance, date another person, like I believed back in the day when I was, uh, because, I, because I felt that relationships were not going to work, they weren't workable. And by the way, my parents both got remarried five times. So it was never, it was never dramatic, but they both had multiple, multiple marriages. And I, it definitely reinforced my belief that marriage cer certainly wouldn't work. So when I was older, I would only ever meet men that were unmarriable. You know, they were not marriage material. Either they were unfaithful or they were too busy at work or they were simply some, they had fatal flaws. Emotionally unavailable. All, all of it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, until I healed the belief that love is actually possible and that marriage can work, mm -hmm. until I changed that belief, I, I couldn't even see my husband because even, and I'm now thankfully in a phenomenal relationship and a wonderful marriage that's working. But back then it was like, you know, all men did this or all men are that. 
and I was introduced to my husband to do uh, my website design from a friend of mine. And when I first met him, there was an attraction to us, like a chemical attraction. Mm-hmm. But I just looked at him and I thought, oh, I could never be with someone this nice. Like I mm-hmm. guys like that for breakfast, you know what I mean? But when I did my healing work three years later, I looked at him and I thought, wow, I see forever in your eyes. So it, it changes like our beliefs, our beliefs create our perception. And then when we change our beliefs, our perception shifts and we see all kinds of possibility we could never see before. And that's what the definition of transformation is. You know, it's when nothing outside of us changes, but we change so profoundly inside that our perception allows for a completely different life to unfold. New pattern system. So pattern and strategy, that was six, Mm -hmm. just so everyone knows as well. I'm just so... I want to go with your flow, so I'm not even going to stop it. <laughs> I wanted to see for divorce. That is so clear. Like the steps to where from an outsider, maybe on the inside, you can kind of see where the trauma started versus how it developed in you and how it reflected out to the rest of the world. Right. Versus what immediately came to my mind about the parts, um, maybe step four, maybe it was step five. Maybe you're going to be able to classify it. You're the expert, not me, right? So we're all learners. That's for sure. I was thinking a little bit about the current stage of my life. Like what actually scares me right now Mm -hmm. versus I've been through a lot of different things. So it takes a lot to scare me. And with me personally, I scare myself the most. Mm -hmm. I'm at this stage in life. um, I'm on my runway as well. I'm 29. And, you know, I'm stepping into this new chapter of 30. And I was recently told by you and a few other amazing women that have been in their 30s before. It's the best time for your career. And it's the best time for your love life. It's the best time period. Like the 30s are the new 20s. (laughs) But with that, my main goal right now is to be able to sit at the table and kind of putting a pun on things. The table I'm trying to sit at is bigger than any table I've been in in my past, which is part of the runway theory, I think, as well going to coin that right now all right so i'm trying to sit at a table with powerful women that have accomplished not just like monetary value like that's important right like we have to be able to support ourselves we have to be strong and i very much believe that money doesn't make you a different person it just shows you who you already were Mm -hmm. so like if i grow an income and i'm a kind person it's an amplifier i'll probably just give it away right Right. (laughs) i have this um secret goal and it's not gonna be secret anymore but i tell people that i'm trying to have mentor me or that i'm trying to sit at that table with that i'm going to be the first ceo multi-millionaire human trafficking survivor Mm. not because of the money like the money's nice the status is nice not going to be you know i'm not gonna lie about it gemini's we're not that good at lying (laughs) we just tell all of our cards but more importantly i believe it's a lot like the four minute mile Mm. where somebody breaks it then like five more are going to break it the next day. And that's what I want for human trafficking survivors. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving you the framework or the build out my blueprint, because I know you like blueprints of why my fear is kind of developed of I am at this point and like, okay, this woman literally sitting across from me has spoken on hundreds of stages, right? She has a fortune 100, you know, company. She has women that fly across the world to just get into her presence. And she's right in front of me and I've had very much a blessing and I do believe it's God's work Mm -hmm. of the right women being introduced to me lately and I get nervous and I get that you know doubt and that inner part in me is just like who am I to even ask them to like have a seat at their table Mm -hmm. because they've accomplished all these amazing things what have I accomplished right and what have I even um, got to say right I shouldn't I just be listening and keeping my mouth shut let alone trying to contribute to a conversation or telling them hey I want to be on stage right I want that TED talk I want you know the ability to show you know survivors everywhere that they're worthy right Mm -hmm. but I get in my inner chatter and I get in my inner like negative mindset and my physical for me it's the right shoulder because I was actually um, hit with a crowbar across my right shoulder so I hold it there right and that comes up in my yoga practice as well separately but anytime I like you know get nervous or physically stretch it out but I go and I'm trying to like relate it the whole way around because I'm pushing past that fear obviously you're sitting at the table and I'm so grateful that you're sitting at the table with me but I cannot identify going into my undermind or into my wonder mind where exactly that type of trauma would have identified 
Is there a popular route that you kind of guide people through if they're trying to figure that out, whether it's in the book or, you know, people that you coach one to one? So what I'm hearing is that you want the seat at the table and you feel a bit of imposter syndrome where you're like, who do I think I am? And what do I have to contribute? See how that voice just tries to undermine you all the way along. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, where do I get the desire and the vision to do what I'm doing? You know, I'm so purpose driven. Where does that come from? And it comes from something so much bigger than you. That's your calling, right? And it's like, if you've been given that vision from the almighty universe, right? From the complete source, because each one of us has a purpose here to you know, grow. And we never get trauma for no reason. The reason that you've lived this journey is so that you can be the voice for others. And now you're choosing to live that calling. You're choosing to answer the call. So this is what I would say is that if you're sitting at a table with women who in your mind have achieved more than you, we, first of all, look at time very linear. Like, I'm this age, you're that age, you're further along. I have this money, you have that money, you're further along. Like we measure, we measure it by that, but it's actually um, a false timeline because that's a human invented timeline. Where we live is on a spiritual timeline. So from a spiritual perspective, we're all souls here. Like we're basically spiritual beings living, you know, a human and mortal experience rather than human beings trying to become spiritual. Mm-hmm. And so if you move into the spiritual space, I mean, of course, there's, you know, neuronal healing that you can do and use PNRT and all the kinds of therapy. But if you're asking me, like, how do I upgrade my thinking of myself and my vision so that I can confidently sit at the table and feel worthy? Well, number one, recognize we're all God's children. We're all meant to be here. And ultimately, if the vision that you've gotten, that's a gift and you need to answer to that calling because anything that's not answering the call is ultimately working against your true nature and life will try to, you know, realign you. That's one. Number two is to just breathe and recognize that every one of these women, you know, and and to surrender to being a learner. Like I'm always a learner. I never walk into any room an expert. Oh my gosh, never, ever, never, because it's too much pressure. That's where imposter syndrome comes from. You think you have to come into the room with some sort of baggage or some sort of offer. What I recognize is that our ability to listen to other people and find value in what they say and feed it back to them by say, I really liked what you said about this, gives them an insight into themselves, you know, helps to develop the message together, all that stuff. And so coming into a room as a listener and a learner, that's, you know, our our most important job when we're sitting at a new table. Number two is recognizing I'm growing into this person. I'm growing, I'm constantly growing into the bigger, better version of myself. So I am an emerging leader. Mm. I am an emerging leader. Despite the fact that I'm a leader now, I'm st- I'm always an emerging leader because I'm always growing. And that's the great part of growth mindset is that I, I, I there is, it's ad infinitum. I never know when it's going to stop. So it's like, am I ready? Mm, I'm kind of never ready. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I'm always growing into the next vision, version of myself. So when you're at the table, you know, feel comfortable being a beginner because we're all beginners. When you're at the table, feel comfortable listening because that's when we really connect to other people. It's not when we're talking, it's when we're listening. That's when connection happens. And then at the same time, just knowing that I'm an emerging leader. So I'm here to bring my divine gifts, my divine gifts, because just the quality of your story and your willingness to share it there is what liberates other people from their trauma. It's not the answers that you need to have. It's the story that you share that gives them grace, that gives them validation, that gives them visibility. Amazing. You're equipped. Thank you. I, I want to drive this like point home because I feel like this is where I could get hung up and I feel like this is where other women and men get hung up as well. So the seventh blueprint that's like the self-sabotage is the results mm-hmm. and you shared a very positive result right that transformative of you're just gonna go do it right and like do it scared you know you can be identifying with some of those I would say parts or inner chatter still and be in that and be fearless right not that you're not scared but you're just right. gonna you go do courageous, it anyway which is courageous yeah we call it yeah. courageous living because courage is 
this is just simply necessary. I want to ask, do you actually have to identify like the defining moment or the trauma or even the conscious decision in order to still be successful in interrupting or disrupting that self-sabotage? You do. So I'm going to ask again, um, and I know that you like walked me through like what I can do moving forward. But if somebody is at that point where like, why is it that I see this powerful woman, this successful woman in front of me, how can I personally go inside? Cause it's all about that subconscious or that undermined and go back into my past right. and figure that out. Is that something that I would have to do with a professional or is that something I can do some like through self work somewhere? Excellent question. Okay. So first of all, in the book, we have um, a chapter on understanding and uncovering your defining moments. So we give you people a worksheet to say, here's the, here's what happened. These are the three decisions I made. It's like, so basically it's like, this is my, let me just make it more personal, right? What is the earliest time that you can, so when you are sitting at a table with other women, for example, mm -hmm. is it that I'm not enough? Is it that I'm not worthy? Is it like, which, where do you think, like, what's the inner chatter telling you? Inner chatter, let me go into my mind real quick. Um, it can be a hazy place. <laughs> so I'm sitting at this table and actually the president of the national bank here in Florida, it, it just went right there. It's weird how the mind works, right? Right. Is she is someone I've known um, for about six years now. I met her literally the day I moved to Miami because I went to a woman's conference and I was actually introduced to go to the conference by another woman that was mentoring me at the time. Her name is Ginger Franklin. I actually look up to her and she's one of my mentors now. And I'm sitting at the table with her and immediately at that time, I didn't have my books. I didn't have my podcast. I didn't have my blue check mark. I didn't have any of that. I just had me recently um, getting on my healing journey. I was outside of my trauma as far as like I was not in the critical stages anymore. I was a few years out, but I didn't have, you know, the salary I wanted. I didn't have a job because nobody would hire a human trafficking survivor with a public platform. And that's another thing I stand behind is the fact that if we can break these stereotypes with survivors, a lot of that stigmatism would just like fall apart and survivors could get these, you know, well-paying jobs that they deserve. So I'm over here and I'm sitting at the table. She's also a motivational speaker and she goes and she just works amazing things throughout a godly journey. She's another godly woman as well. And I'm thinking here is, you know, Miss Franklin, or now I call her Ginger, which is, you know, funny how things change. Right. And she's this powerful woman. She's very assertive, right? Like women of power or motivation or love, they, you know, have the perfect posture, <laughs> the perfect way of speaking. And you just like, you know, wow. Right. They mesmerize you. And my inner chatter was telling me there's no way that this woman's going to take me seriously. There's no way that this woman's to believe that I'm actually going to write a book and I can't, I don't even know, like maybe do I ask her for a job? Do I not ask her for a job? Is she going to think that I'm just a mute? Like I'm going through all these negative labels, to yeah. be honest with you, I'm labeling myself. Mm -hmm. And through that, I'm like, well, maybe I should just ask her if I can be a bank teller even though it's nothing I would ever want to do. Not that I'm against bank tellers. It's just, do not put me in front of counting your bills. Like that's not one of my gifts. Like I'm good at investing money or, you know, finding other means of money, but like, and I'm also not an extrovert at heart. I'm an introvert at heart. So like not something I would enjoy doing and definitely not my calling. I knew that way back then as well as like my calling is to have these type of conversations and like, you know, accelerate that as well. But I'm like, immediately I minimize myself after I label myself. And then I get to the point, well, she's not even going to want to talk to me. Like I shouldn't even try to go and sit with her because if I get to a point where I actually start talking to her, I have no value to give this woman. Like she's already the president of a bank, right? It's like, what can I possibly offer her? Mm -hmm. So that's very intimate. <laughs> and I'm going to like laugh. You know, another defense mechanism of myself is I laugh afterwards when I get nervous, but that's my inner chatter. Like the most vulnerable way I can put yeah. it. No, that's really, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think your audience is really going to appreciate that because we've all felt that way. We've all felt that way. A hundred percent. We've all felt that way. And so there's the pattern, right? I'm in front of what I perceive is power. 
Mm -hmm. Because we also generalize thinking we all, you know, we often think, oh, that person has it all together, but I don't. Mm -hmm. That's what we think. Right. And we look at that person and we generalize their perfection, our deep imperfection, which triggers our shame and ultimately makes us quiet. Right. And reserved and pull back and even think, you know, makes you think of being out of alignment. It's like I'm in alignment when I'm having spiritual and psychological conversations, but maybe a bank teller, you know, because that's all I can really get. Or maybe she can give me, do you know what I mean? So or would offer me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you get into the pattern of minimizing yourself and validating yourself, making other people seem as if they're better than you. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not enough. She is more than. And because I'm so deeply not enough, why would she even give me this time of day? Okay. Now we've established, let's say I'm not enough and I'm not worthy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we think to ourselves, okay, I've had it with this pattern as an adult. Like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. This is, this is done. I'm done with this. So perfect. Now you go to say, let's say PNRT, the uh, progressive neural resolution therapy. So Joanna does that. We have lots of other therapists that are certified and you can, you can either go through the worksheet. So if you go through the worksheet, it basically says, think back to a time and your subconscious mind will actually uncover it. So if I ask you now, Erin, think back to it, think back to a time, like when is the youngest that you ever felt not worthy and not good enough? Um, <laughs> it's weird because the mind does like this weird thing. I once went to a ballet studio mm-hmm. and I might have been like seven or eight and I did a class. I don't remember if the class was free. I don't remember if the class wasn't free. And I had the most fun in the world. Like, mm-hmm. I love dancing and I dance a lot in my adult life now, but ballet is expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember I had, you know, the time of my life. And then my mother came to pick me up and she started talking to whoever at the front desk was. And they were, you know, discussing prices or money, you know, right? Because ballet is expensive. And I saw how my mother reacted to the pricing. And she turned at me and Irisha or Erica, whatever you can say, my full name. And she's just like, how much did you enjoy it? And I noticed that there was a little bit of fear when she was talking about prices. Now, I'll preference this with the fact that when my parents had me, they were very young. In fact, they were kids themselves. They were still in their teens. And I could see that fear in my mother to where I completely just lied to her. And I just told her, like, oh, it was all right. You know, it wasn't that fun you know like that type of thing and I feel like part of me also is just like maybe this is too expensive and we're not worthy of that like that's a rich you know person thing to be able to do ballet and you know that kind of maybe it's like multi-level in that way it's always multi-level because it's always multi-level it's never just like one that kind of maybe it's like multi-level um probably unworthiness 100 percent um the need to like protect my mother's feelings is probably in there because if i would have told her i loved it and i have a feeling that would have been a strain on our family and then the maybe anger and yeah and i think i'm thinking of this you know as you know, the 28 year old I am now trying to remember my seven year old. And I think that we always remember feelings better than exact words. And I remember feeling like, okay, I need to, you know, protect my mother. Like this might not be good for my family, but also like, I'm kind of selfish, you know, like I really had fun, right? Like seven year olds are supposed to be selfish. It's literally in their makeup. So I'm just like, I have fun. I want to tell my mom. Yes. And at the same time, the unworthiness of like, here's the price. You're not good enough for the price. And I feel like that's probably like the key one is monetary has been like throughout, you know, growing up, whether it's being an immigrant, like being an immigrant or whether it's you know, being a survivor of human trafficking and going from like slavery to, you know, CEO, like those type of hits, like inhibits, right? Those are the patterns that mentioned that keep showing up throughout the life. And then also the prestige of being, you know, a ballerina, right? Especially as a young girl, you look up to ballet. It's this miraculous art. It's beautiful. And I love going to like the Miami Ballet. Anything that's regarding 
physical dance and you almost get like those are the most graceful women right and who wouldn't want to be one of the most graceful women and i can even kind of see the correlation of power there right it's like it's not monetary power but it's like you know the elegance power that comes along with ballet so you Life is what it is. Like, just accept it and move forward. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Yeah, like, at seven, yeah, I'm relating to seven. Yeah, maybe at seven, it felt like it was So it's like, I'm not worthy. I'm supported. Like, like what I need. And so we've had a I have a very interesting relationship with them. I have this relationship where my mother had actually become quite a powerful woman over the years herself. And she's had to take some of those hard moments, like the moment of being told you don't have enough money for your daughter to do ballet. And she's turned it into, um, you know, getting her own degrees. And, you know, she has real estate problems now. So she's kind of had her own transformative journey sometimes. And this might be where the anger comes out is that uh, I wasn't enough or what I wasn't worthy can kind of correlate to the mother as well. Like sometimes I feel like I need to protect my mom, like even with this, right? Immediately before I'm going to say anything remotely that could be perceived as negative, I got to tell you how great my mom is, right? I got to tell you like she, you know, she owns real estate and she's extremely smart and she's a strong woman. I got to preference that. So, exactly. immediately dismiss a compliment. deserve a piece of the table <laughs> or a seat. I don't need that physical thing. We're just a seat. <laughs> right. And so is it absolutely mm. like, like, what is it absolutely you know, 
some of their healing, which is another one of, you know, hopefully my purposes on this earth that God gave me. So tell us before we sign off here, how do they connect with you or where do they go to find you? And what's your next project? Okay. 
And I just really want to apologize for having this podcast so much. And, you know, it's a conversation, but, you know, it's different. 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 It's different.